You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lalan. I'm joined by Carol Piovison, who is the lead in artificial intelligence and co-lead for McCarthy Tetro's National Cybersecurity uh, Privacy and Data Management Group. And McCarthy Tetro, for those of you not familiar, is one of Canada's largest law firms. Uh, Carol actually uh, was appointed by the Minister of Innovation, Navdeep Baines, as one of the six innovation experts to facilitate national consultations on data and digital transformation for Canada. Uh, Carol also assisted the federal government in drafting and negotiating the position on artificial intelligence that ended up being adopted by the G7 ministers of innovation last March. So uh, very well done, Carol. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So I'm going to start with, given that, given that uh, you, you occupy two positions somewhat, I'm going to start with asking you, how are AI uh, and cybersecurity uh, intertwined? And maybe you can give a couple of examples of, of, of that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so when you think about artificial intelligence, we're going to step back for a second. We're going to think about what is this system. Um, it really, you've got an algorithm that is relying on a huge amount of data for the purposes of training and learning before whatever its outcome should be is deployed into the world. So that means, very simply, that you have a very sophisticated system that is modeled off the human way of thinking. And just like we as humans, we use a huge amount of data to help inform our decisions. So cybersecurity and artificial intelligence intersect in the fact that, as one example, in the fact that the amount of data that you are collecting and storing is at risk of a cyber attack when you're doing it, regardless of why you're doing it, but particularly when you're doing it for the purposes of AI, okay? So that's one area where I often see it interact. When I'm speaking to clients, I tell them, as you're holding all this information to train your AI system, be mindful of cyber attacks. There are other ways where AI can uh, and does intersect with cybersecurity, and that could be in actual cybersecurity solutions. So using artificial intelligence to mine for uh, bad actors or to mine for potential attacks, to report in real time on any type of breaches in, in a security system. So it's being used, when I think of it, I think of it both from uh, a strict sort of traditional cybersecurity perspective, which is you've got a lot of data, be careful about it, but also from a practical perspective, which is you can use AI to enhance your cybersecurity planning and preparedness. So do you think that's do you think that AI is, you know, potentially replacing some of the people that are working at cybersecurity firms? You know, another great question. We get a lot of those types of questions when it comes to artificial intelligence. There's a lot of fear and concern about whether AI is ultimately going to replace human jobs and there are a lot of statistics out there that will tell you various different stories. I think the reality is this. I think that there are with any new technology, there are certain types of tasks that the technology ultimately replaces, okay? So it used to be the case that we had, um, I mean, one example is you used to have somebody walk in front of a, a trolley before the car automated cars really came into vogue. That no longer was required once you started to adopt automated cars 
more fully um, or standard cards, whichever was the case. There are certain types of tasks that you will ultimately replace. So, yes, I do think that artificial intelligence will replace certain tasks. Uh, it may very well replace certain jobs. But keep your eye to the future, which is really that it will also create opportunities as well. We can already see that in this space uh, there are new types of jobs like an AI ethicist that never existed 10 years ago, but now is starting to exist as an actual role, as an actual job. So, yes, I do think that some jobs will be replaced, but I also think that new jobs will be created. Let's, let's stay on uh, cybersecurity for a moment. Uh, we keep hearing about IoT, the Internet of Things, and how we increasingly are connected uh, in, this, in this world. You know, the last number I heard was that there are 20 billion devices that are, that are connected, which effectively means that uh, it, it potentially makes us more exposed or more, more vulnerable uh, to, to cybercrime. What you, what, what's your thoughts on, on, on the, the, the association between connectivity and, and cybercrime? And then on top of that, you know, in layman's terms, what do you think individuals should actually be doing to protect themselves? The more data that's out there, the more we are at risk of our data being collected by the wrong type of actor. So, that is just the reality. That's the reality that we're living in, and a lot of our, our, our devices are connected to different, different sources. Uh, that's true for devices that you wear, devices in your home. Uh, it's also true for things like medical devices that are increasingly sort of smart devices and connected. So there, the risk of uh, an attack on, on IoT devices is substantial. What can people do to protect? Well, I think we'll see a new um, – so, number one, there are many different security features that we often don't know about but that exist in our devices that allow us to control how much access uh, a third party can have to our devices. So, our smartphone, for instance, has – a lot of us have a ton of apps on our smartphone, um, and we, we often don't think about the security features that are available to us, so we don't – we don't shift those security features to protect more of our privacy, which we can, okay? One thing we could do is become more conscious of that and learn more about how to activate those security features so that we are very consciously uh, aware of who we give access to when it comes to our devices. Um, I think there will also be increasing regulation as to when it is appropriate or inappropriate to be able to access people's information and data, and I think there's a lot of change happening in the data space um, from a regulatory perspective, and we see this uh, in Europe, but I, through the consultations in Canada, we also see very thoughtful discussion about what it means to be in a data-driven uh, society and how do we protect ourselves from that. So those are some examples of things that we can do. Um, again, one, be mindful of and be protective of how you give access to your devices, and then two, also get in the debate about what our digital rights should be uh, in Canada and around the world, and what we would sort of expect from our companies and our governments when it comes to accessing our data from country from companies, whether they're in Canada or again globally. Right. So, staying on data, as we often hear, data is the new gold or the new oil. Um, but one of the things that I often hear talking to people is that 
there's so much there, there's such a massive compilation of data being mined out there uh, right now, and companies are making a lot of money off of mining that data. But the only people that are not making any money uh, off of the data are the individuals that are actually providing uh, or creating yeah. that data, uh, for whether it's through our, you know, our smartphone or our watch or, or, or what have you. What are your thoughts on, on that? Like, will we eventually enter into a model where people actually st start getting paid uh, to provide their data out there? So I'm not sure. Uh, it's, there are two arguments to that. There is the one argument, which is this is my data. I'm handing it over, so I should get paid for it. Uh, there is the other argument, which is, well, it's sort of a barter system in the sense of uh, you give up your data, but in exchange you get this convenience that you never had before. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if that's really a fair argument either. There's also a third point, which is, all right, let's say we entered into this data market space where you give up your data, I pay you for it. Practically speaking, what does that look like? Like you're talking about. Um, arguably very minimal amount of money that would exchange. So how do you, what does that look like and how do you really affect it in a practical way? So it might seem like a great idea, but how do you do it? Um, I don't think there are great answers out there yet, but it's, it's, there are people innovating in this space. So, and, and there are services that already exist that would allow you to enter into this type of exchange. But then you get into certain ethical questions as well. So do you fully understand what your data is going to be used for? Uh, do you have um, full disclosure in terms of secondary use? So you might understand who the first party might, how the first party might use your data, but will you fully understand how the secondary use uh, will be affected and are you being properly compensated for that? And then all sorts of other, you know, you can enter into a whole world of legal issues as to, well, what does proper compensation mean? What do you do if you dispute the compensation based on ultimate use. So I'm not sure where it's going to go, but it's an evolving area. It's certainly a discussion as to what is the value to the individual of your individual data. But it does get us into a really good debate about sort of digital uh, education and digital rights. So do we understand as citizens how our data is being used, how it's being accessed, by whom and for what purpose? We really understand. And I think the answer is no. I think most of us don't really understand how often our phones are accessed for our data. I don't mm. think we fully appreciate how much we are being monitored or tracked or how our data is being collected. And, and so then the question becomes, all right, if we did understand the full scope of how our data is being accessed, what do we want to do about it? Do we think the exchange of convenience is enough? So let me ask you. Let me ask you a personal question. Uh, do you have like a Google Home or an Alexa? I do. You do. Okay. So I do. Uh, you know. It, so are, do you have any concern about you know those types of home devices um, tracking a whole bunch of information about you when maybe they're not supposed to? Yeah, I do. So it's a, it's a discussion in my household about the use of Google Home. Uh, and I think we have both. We have Google Home and Alexa in our household. Um, and, you know, when is it, is it appropriate to have them on all the time? Should they be unplugged during certain times? You know, when the kids are around, is it fair that, that 
these devices should be on. Um, so it is. It's definitely a discussion, but uh, they are there and they are on most of the time. So it's a discussion, but interestingly, it's not really changing our behavior very much. No, I think it's you, the. I think you're. I, I have it too. Yes, I have Google. Yeah, Home I was going to ask you. And I, and I think that it's uh, to me the convenience uh, factor of having it um, trumps my desire for privacy, and I think that's kind of uh, the reason uh, why 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 we have it. I I just find it incredibly useful uh, at so, home to to do so many different tasks. But I recognize that there could be listening. I've heard all of these other stories out there about. Uh, data dumps and 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 listening when they're not supposed to. But I don't know. My view has always been I'm not really hiding anything. I don't really care. Um, so the convenience factor trumps uh, the, the 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 need for privacy. But I've also heard other people say I'm not hiding anything either. But I I still don't feel like they should have all that data. So I think I so I I totally agree. I think it's fascinating. I think that the the debate itself is quite fascinating because I've talked to people who have made your very argument and my argument, frankly, about the fact that it's it's quite convenient to have around, right? And then they decided to go online to actually see how their data is being recorded. And what they have reported back to me is that, you know, I think I can't remember which device it was, but there was a full transcript of their discussions when they didn't even know the system was on or listening. And that really was profound for them because they didn't fully appreciate what it meant to be accessing that data. So instead, uh, what what often happened in the cases of the people who did this is that they just turned it off. They said it's too much, it's too invasive, and it's not convenient enough for the degree to which it's invasive. Yeah. But the the point about privacy and the fact that you would rather trade off the convenience factor for the privacy factor because you're really not hiding anything, that really does raise an interesting discussion about why do we care so much about privacy and cybersecurity and sort of the, the safeguarding of our private information? And what it does is it takes us to this, to a place where, you know, free thought is, is often, um, encouraged or flourishes where there are no eyes watching. So, dissent and sort of the right to think or the ability to think in nonconformist ways really happens when you've got that freedom to with freedom from judgment I think it's the best way to put it so nobody is watching nobody knows what I'm doing and I have the ability now to think and act in the wildest ways because I'm I am no longer sort of constrained by judgment and then through that creativity comes and real innovation and dissent so we might not be, as individuals, doing anything that we have to hide, but the value of privacy is still really important because it still allows us, particularly in a democracy such as ours, it allows us to be free. It allows us to be creative. It allows us to do things that we might not otherwise do if we knew that eyes were watching, ears were listening, and judgment was being cast. So let's talk about let's talk about data protection a little bit because I think it's important and you know obviously a lot of your work surrounds this. We have uh, GDPR General Data Protection Regulation that was implemented last year in the EU. Um, first of all, maybe in, in a nutshell, can you explain what that what that what that regulation actually means 
And then how is this being translated in North America? Great. So the GDPR um, is it, it comes from an earlier directive, European directive, that seeks to protect the private information and the control over personal data, personal information. And what the GDPR really is, is seeking to do then, it's to allow individuals to determine or have greater determination over how their information is used, have better knowledge about how their information or their personal data is being used, by whom, for what purpose, where is it stored, who can access it. Um, and and the, the point in the end is to, like I said, give individuals that degree of autonomy and control over their own information. In North America, so let's take Canada, we have um, privacy leg legislation that is quite similar to the GDPR and that's been in place for nearly 20 years. Uh, and our, our legislation is principles-based, so it's not as prescriptive as the GDPR. It doesn't necessarily tell you the do's and don'ts, but it gives you principles, guiding principles by which uh, companies can govern appropriate um, use of personal information. And individuals then can have an expectation over how their information will be used and how, how much information they'll be given about the use of their data. So with the GDPR, um, we have really been thinking about in Canada, where do we fit in? Does our privacy legislation, is it sufficient to meet the standard of the GDPR? Do we need to create more conservative laws to rise to the level of the GDPR? Or is what we have good enough? Um, or do we have a, a system that is possibly too strict on privacy, such that it's stifling innovation. Um, what you find in the, down south are in the U.S., the privacy legislation or principles, guidance, is uh, not quite as um, strict as what we have here in Canada, certainly, um, and, and is certainly nowhere near what Europe has done. So you've got, within North America, very different privacy regimes, that are at play. And so for Canadians, we are thinking, where do we fit in? Are we more, should we, should we go more the route of the U.S., which is not what I think we're going to do? Um, or should we align closer with the Europeans, which is now considered the global gold standard for privacy law? Should we align closer to the Europeans and, or ultimately just adopt the GDPR as our own standard? Um, or is there a third way? That is the nub of the debate that's happening in Canada right now. And what's the influence that, uh, and, you know, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist or anything, but what's the, like, in, if you look at the U.S., what's the influence that some of the companies that are, are the biggest data gatherers are having on policy? It's such a great question, particularly if you think about the context of AI. So in in the world of so data is key for all companies. Um, but what we see in certain contexts is that some companies are actually coming out and saying, you know what, we need more government regulation in this sector. So I'll give you the example of... I think I've seen, um, I think I've seen Apple do that. Apple has done that. Microsoft recently came out, and in the context of facial recognition technology, uh, it has said they have uh, asked for more government regulation and more government dialogue and guidance 
in this specific use case. And the reason is because it is really invasive and it can be used for very negative purposes. Um, it also has really great use cases. So you don't want to over-regulate and then ultimately stifle the ability for that type of technology to grow and flourish. But you want certain no-go zones where companies will not be using the technology in a manner that is effectively, you know, um, surveilling various people or groups of people for ulterior motives. So, so I find it really interesting that we do see companies coming out asking in some context for greater regulation and greater government dialogue and involvement because it's very clear that there, there could be really negative use cases for these particular technologies. Okay. Interesting. So why don't we close off with some of your top uh, predictions, uh, two or three predictions over the course of the next few years? So I think the first biggest prediction is that we will see more use of AI technology, and we will see and hear a lot more about cybersecurity. And so what I mean there is I think that security readiness plan and a cybersecurity breach protocol plan will be table stakes for all companies. And increasingly having or incorporating an AI strategy into an overall business approach will become much more commonplace. So those are two areas where we can see that the use of data um, and the protection of data will become front and center for most of most, if not all, prominent companies. Um, I think the discussion about privacy legislation in Canada it certainly is ongoing. Um, I think what we'll find is that Canada maintains some autonomy from the GDPR, but aligns most closely with GDPR to the extent without actually adopting it fully. So I think that's where we'll go when it comes to privacy legislation, and I think we're on the right track. Um, and I think we're going to start to see practical applied AI much more prominently than we have in the past. So I think what that means is we're going to be able to use AI more regularly than we have before, and I think that that's going to result in some pretty exciting opportunities for us and some really exciting technologies coming forward, particularly in sectors like financial services or healthcare. Right. Great. Thank you very much, Carol. This was interesting. Thanks a lot for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.